Today, it's uh, my privilege to lead us in our study of the scriptures tonight as we turn our attention to the passage that was just read for us by our friend Sarah from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Uh, now, as we have just wrapped up our summer study, our slow stroll, as Pastor Andrew described it, of John 15, we're taking this week to pause, to, to kind of recalibrate ourselves, refocus, and prepare to make our transition into the life and ministry rhythms of the fall season. Next week, we'll begin an, an exciting study and journey through the book of Acts. And my hope and prayer is that God would use our time tonight to set us up, as it were, for that journey. If you remember earlier this year, we began the process of pursuing three priorities in our ministry focus as a faith family. And they were, uh, first and foremost, cultivating gospel clarity. Uh, we want to be actively, continually cultivating gospel clarity, our understanding of the gospel and how it is integrated into each and every aspect of our life. But even more importantly, how the gospel can speak to some of the questions that the world, that the society is asking of us. We had an opportunity earlier this year uh, to have an extensive time of study in our gospel clarity study series uh, around faith or the gospel and ethnic identity. And we'll have another opportunity coming up uh, here in another month or so as we uh, explore how uh, the gospel speaks to spiritual warfare. And so we want to continually ongoing, uh, in an ongoing way, be cultivating gospel clarity in the life of our church. Another priority that we began pursuing uh, or just ramped up our pursuit of was that of missional engagement. And we've been doing that intentionally through our missional communities by how we are equipping disciples to make disciples. Uh, we don't want the church just to be the disciple-making center, but in doing so, we want to provide disciples in the life of our church with tools, with equipment, so to speak, uh, that they can be engaging in the process of making disciples, not only together with their missional community, but in their homes, uh, in their neighborhoods, in their workplace, and beyond. And so we began the process of ramping up our pursuit of missional engagement. And lastly, that of being the church, which is what led us to study through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus earlier this year. And we're continuing to identify and press into ways in which we can embody what it means to be the church. Now, I believe this passage tonight serves us and helps us in some way in all of these areas. And I'm praying that God would use it to ignite our hearts for his purposes as we move into this next season together. Now, this passage that we're looking at tonight, we've studied before. Uh, some of you may remember it, but it's been a minute since then, so maybe you've forgotten. We've studied a, lot of, studied a lot of passages since then. But what's incredible and amazing about the Word of God is that it is truly living and active, as it says in Hebrews 4.12. So I am trusting that the Holy Spirit will draw new application, not necessarily find new truths for us, uh, not that we mined out every truth that there was to mine out when we looked at it before, but we, we're trusting that the Holy Spirit will draw new application for our hearts from the text today as we spend the next few moments mining out and unpacking the four exhortations that I believe we find here. I want to ask that you pray with me one more time tonight. God, we are grateful for your kindness toward us in giving us the scriptures. And we ask tonight that as we open the scriptures, you would illumine our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful, beautiful truths from your word, that they would transform us from the inside out, uh, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, that you would admonish us, that uh, if there needs to be uh, some correction or rebuke, you would do that work with your word, ultimately, that we might bear fruit that remains much fruit, 
for your glory, for our good, and for the good of our neighbors. God, we love you. We thank you for this time tonight, and we pray it in Jesus' name. And we, as we open our Bibles tonight, Colossians chapter 4, we're coming to the end of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. This is a small letter, uh, much like Ephesians and Philippians is often referred to as the sister letter to Ephesians that we studied earlier this year. Uh, but as Paul has moved through this letter, he uh, has expressed his thanksgiving to God and for what he's doing in the city of Colossae among these disciples. He's been praying for their spiritual growth. And one of the things that Colossians is most well known for uh, is a passage in chapter 1 where Paul presses into and lifts up the supremacy of Christ, declaring that Christ is preeminent. He is before and above all things. And setting the stage there, he begins to address some false teachings that have been cropping up in the city and have been uh, causing some schisms in the life of the church. But as he addresses those things, he moves on to begin to explore and to unpack for these disciples what life in Christ looks like, the difference in living according to the old way and then uh, putting on the new man, as he talks about in chapter 3. He begins, begins to then drill down into aspects of the Christian life and even all the way to the point of how the gospel is to be functioning in our homes. But as the Apostle Paul moves towards bringing this letter to its conclusion, he begins to admonish the Colossians, and I believe even us tonight as we open and read this letter, to pray, to press into communing with God, to press into interceding for others. But he, he commands or admonishes them to pray, not just any kind of way, but particularly to pray with devotion. Paul calls the Colossians to devote themselves to prayer, or to better yet, to pray with, with a kind of fervor or with a passion, to pray with a focused intensity. Now, why would he call them to pray this way? Why would he call them to, to this kind of prayer? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't pray as much as I should. <laughs> it is not the default posture of my heart and the way it should be. Maybe it's a weird personality quirk. Uh, maybe it's something I need to continue to, to work on and discipline myself in. But I spend a lot more time thinking about, thinking about how to troubleshoot issues, thinking about our church, thinking about uh, and planning for my family's future, watching and listening to the news, thinking and wondering who's going to fix the world problems. Uh, I spend way more mental energy than I should in those directions when, in fact, I should be turning my heart's and mind's attention heavenward and spending time praying. Now, I think this being the default disposition of my heart is a result of the fall. Because the first man and woman rebelled, declaring themselves independent of God, we all default to this posture, this posture of prayerlessness. Timothy Keller says, to pray is to accept that we are and always will be wholly dependent on God for everything. So even though the default disposition of our heart is a prayerlessness, Declaring our independence from God to pray is to press into the opposite posture. This reality that we are dependent upon God for everything is the very thing that was, in essence, being rejected in the fall. And so the Holy Spirit tonight, through the Apostle Paul, is admonishing the church at Colossae, and through this letter as we open it, is admonishing us to devote or to commit ourselves to prayer. We must be a praying people. 
He then goes on to call them to pray with awareness. He says, devote yourselves to pray, to prayer. Stay alert in it. He's almost exhorting them uh, to pray with, with such intensity and focus as if almost nothing else matters, but then he, he tells them to stay alert or to be aware. Don't get so much in tunnel vision in your prayers that you don't know what's going on around you. I want you to, to focus and to pray intently, but also stay alert, be aware. I think this may even imply a need to stay fresh in our prayers. You know, it's really easy for us to default to our rote prayers and, and pray the same prayers all the time. Not the same petitions. It's not that we're bringing the same things to the Lord, but sometimes we just kind of get in a prayer rut and we're saying the same things over and over again. Well, to be alert or to stay alert in prayer, I think, means that we're to be aware of whether or not our hearts and our minds are actually engaged in the activity of prayer. Whether or not we're praying on autopilot. And secondly, I think to, to stay alert in this, to be aware and sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is saying as we're talking to God. Prayer is not a one-way conversation. It's not about us coming before God and sending up all of our requests, laying out all of our needs and our desires before him, but to stay alert, to stay aware in prayer, as Paul is admonishing us here tonight, I think means to be listening to the Spirit and thereby praying in step with him that we might be truly praying, God, your kingdom come and your will be done. We then see the exhortation to, to pray with thanksgiving. Now, I think this is important to take note of, especially with how short this exhortation has been laid out so far. It's been pretty fast and furious. We're told to devote yourselves to prayer, stay alert in it, and then he says, with thanksgiving. I think when we're praying with such intense focus, we can easily, I don't know, lose the forest for the trees, almost. We can be so weighed down in and with our request that we, we forget to praise God for who he is. We forget what he has done. We, we perhaps forget that he is a prayer answering God. And to begin to pray with thanksgiving in the midst of our, our intense focus of prayer, of being devoted and staying alert. And when we begin to express thanksgiving in our prayers, I believe thanksgiving cultivates worship in the heart of the intercessor. We begin to thank God for who he is and what he's done. And as I think about this, I, I, I've thought about a few ways we could maybe consider expressing thanksgiving to prayer in prayer. Uh, now, of course, this isn't an exhaustive list, but a few ways that I've come up with is it's expressing thanksgiving for our redemption and for the freedom that we have in Christ. Think about the fact that we have been redeemed from the curse of the law, that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and that we've been set free from our bondage to sin and death. Galatians says, whom the Son has set free, he is free indeed. This is something to express thanksgiving to God for in our prayers. What about for our position before God in Christ? How we're adopted as children. We're no longer strangers or aliens. We're no, no longer enemies of God, but we've been brought near through the blood of Jesus, and he has called us sons and daughters. This is something to express gratitude and thanksgiving to God for in our prayers. I think being a recipient of God's grace is another thing to be thankful for. The fact that we, we get what we don't deserve. Paul says in, in Ephesians 1 that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it was based on nothing that we ourselves did. So we can thank God for the grace that we have received. 
And I think we can also express to God our thanksgiving for him being merciful to us, for him not giving us what we deserve. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What we deserved was God's wrath. What we deserved was his judgment. But God being rich in mercy. Thank you, Jesus. One that fires me up is the fact that we've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 5.17. He says, if any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He has set it up in such a way that in saving us by his grace, he has put in our hands this partnership with him to see the lost come to Christ. That's something to express gratitude and thanksgiving for. And then what about the reality that God is patient? He is patient with us. He has been patient. He is patient. And he continues to exhibit his patience because 2 Peter 3.9 says that he is not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance. Now these are just a few of the things and the ways that we can and should express thanksgiving as we bring our petitions for the Lord. There are so many innumerable things in your life and in my life that we can be expressing thanksgiving for so that we don't get lost in, in just bringing our petitions before the Lord. We should be devoted to prayer. We should stay alert in it, but absolutely we should give God thanks and praise for what he has done because it will ignite faith in our heart to keep asking because if he's answered before, we can believe that he will answer again. The scripture says that he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. So in the outset of this passage, we're exhorted to pray, to pray with devotion, with awareness, and with thanksgiving. And in the same breath, we see Paul shift gears a little and admonish us to watch. I think this is an aspect of what it means to, to stay alert in prayer. But here he gives a particular request. He, he kind of sneaks in a prayer request, as it were, and I think this is the kind of request that, that he and we have to be watchful as to whether or not God is answering. In verse 3, Paul, Paul says, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word. This means that we should not only pray, but that we should also watch. What should we watch for? We should watch for open doors. And Paul specifically here is asking for an open door, not not particularly to get him out of prison, but he is asking for an open door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, which is the gospel, as he should. Other translations say, therefore, as he should, clearly. Paul wants to speak the gospel clearly. You see, as he is writing this letter, he, and he testifies of this in verse 3, Paul is in prison. He's in chains because of his preaching of the gospel. Yet he is not asking for prayer to be released from that. What he continues to press in is to ask for an open door, an opportunity for the gospel to continue to go forward, that it might be proclaimed with clarity. This is, of course, I think in light of the fact that there, there must seem to be some kind of obstacle, some kind of hindrance to the gospel. And it could be the fact that he is in chains, that he's in prison. We don't know that. But he, he, he puts this request before the Colossians to pray that God would open a door for the word. And so the questions I want to put before us to consider today are simple. They are these. 
What do you perceive to be the closed doors that if they were opened, they would lead to you clearly proclaiming the gospel? And secondly, what might God do in our lives, in our church, and in our city if we, as God's people, as a faith family, are asking him at the outset of each day to open a door for the word? I think if we began to pray and we began to watch, we'd begin to see God opening doors to us for the word in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and all over this city. As we pray and watch, Paul goes on to admonish us to live. And I think this is, this is important for him to say here because we could easily lead ourselves to believe that in devoting ourselves to prayer and staying alert in it, praying with thanksgiving, being so intensely focused, and then also taking the time to, to watch for God's response and his answer to those prayers, we can easily lead ourselves to, to believe that we're to, to then live some kind of monastic lifestyle, that we're to be secluded and sequestered, not to be disturbed and inter, in, entangled uh, by the everyday affairs of life. But Paul didn't see it that way. Paul understood the Colossians to be just as we are, just as we should be, entrenched in the life and the rhythms of their community and their city. And so with that in mind, he encourages them to act wisely, to live their lives, but also to be careful or intentional to live with wisdom. Now, what does this mean, you might ask? What, what does it mean to live with wisdom? Well, I think Paul points in that direction a little bit earlier in Colossians in chapter 2, verse 3, where he says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So to act or to live with wisdom is to pursue wisdom in every area of our lives. And if it's hidden in Christ, then to pursue wisdom is to pursue Christ. It might feel or might sound a little cheesy. You probably hadn't heard this phrase in a while. But I think this is kind of what it means to consider what would Jesus do in any circumstance, in the handling of our relationships, in the management of our homes, and how we perform on the job and in the workplace, how we spend our time and treasure. To live or to act wisely, to live with wisdom applies to the whole of our lives. But I think Paul has more of a, a missional intent in mind when he gives this admonishment to live with wisdom. He says, act wisely toward outsiders. Don't just live wisely for the sake of living wisely. That's a good reason to live wisely. That's enough. But he says, act wisely or live with wisdom toward outsiders. So we're to live with outsiders in mind. And of course, this doesn't in any way diminish how we're to interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are members of the household of faith, but I think it does put an emphasis on how we are to live as we engage with those who are still far from God. Paul seems to imply here that we should live in such a way that our lives would be used of God to perhaps attract, impress, even convict non-Christians and give our communities a favorable or positive impression of the gospel. We've got to live with wisdom. We've got to live with outsiders in mind. Now, let me take a moment to speak to the fact that some of us might be uncomfortable with the language used here in the text when making reference to unbelievers or non-Christians. Paul calls them outsiders. 
Now, I think it's important for us to not lessen the weight of what it means to be found in Christ. This is, this is huge. It is no small thing that those of us who are believing the gospel are in Christ because there is nothing an individual can do to put him or herself in Christ. So it is a big deal to be in Christ or to be an insider. So we shouldn't lessen the, the weight or the tension that we might feel for what it means to be found in Christ or to not be. I think it's also important for us to realize that the, the unbelieving world is not confused by their conscious unbelief. They don't consider themselves to be Christians and don't take offense to us honestly acknowledging that reality. I think about some new neighbors that God has given us the privilege to, to kind of lean in and begin sharing life with very quickly. We've lived in the place that we've lived for over four years and uh, have had a few neighbors in our home a couple of times and uh, I don't think we've actually been in any of our other neighbors' home at all in that time. Uh, we've been extending the invitation, but in a few short months since these neighbors have moved in, like God has allowed us to become fast friends, and we've been sharing life, we've been sharing meals, it's been a great getting to know them, uh, but they're not, they're not believers in Christ, they're not Christians. And what's been interesting is the exciting, the fun conversations that I've had as open questions have been asked about our faith in Christ and how we live our life and what that means, uh, which I think is another reason why cultivating gospel clarity is important. <laughs> because the questions that come, they aren't always easy questions. But it's been fun engaging in these conversations. They've been non-confrontational. They haven't been hostile. But it comes from a place of them being honest and open and upfront and not making any qualms about them not being believers. I say that because I think if we are not careful in our attempts to make outsiders feel more like insiders, we allow ourselves to make assumptions about what a person might know or understand about the gospel and even whether or not they are even embracing the gospel at all. And this is all based on how comfortable we want them to be around us or with us. This is why it's important for us to cultivate gospel clarity. As Pastor Andrew says, in order for the gospel to be clear, it must be functional. And I think one of the ways that we, we see that the gospel is operating at the functional center of our church and of our lives is how much we are speaking the gospel to one another. How much the gospel is infusing our language, is informing our conversation, how much the gospel is really informing our worldview, and how much we are correcting the fallacies that may be coming out in our speech and in the way that we're living. And so, yes, I would hope that our unbelieving friends, our neighbors and colleagues would feel loved and they would feel welcomed in our church and in our life. But I also hope that we are living in such a way that our love for the Savior is undeniably clear through our words and through our actions. I pray that we would always act or live wisely with outsiders in mind. Which goes, into, to tie, goes on to tie into how Paul encourages the, the Colossians to live. Not only are they to live uh, wisely or with wisdom, not only are they to live with outsiders in mind, but he goes on to encourage them to live in such a way that they are maximizing the opportunities. Now, God's given us an incredible summer as a faith family of community engagement across our expressions. 
my greatest hope is that as we kind of begin to shift into the fall rhythms, that, that we would continue to press into the relationships that were sparked through events like Party in the Park and our Imagine Kids camps. That we, that we would continue to press into those, into those relationships as, as the days draw shorter and as uh, the weather changes and as people kind of withdraw from being out in the public sector, so to speak. That we would consider how we can continue to, to make our tables places of community and mission, how we can leverage the 21 meals uh, that we partake of on the weekly for that purpose. And how we might harness the momentum the upcoming holiday season naturally brings into our lives as we gather with friends and family. And that we would intentionally reach out to and graft some of our newest friends into those celebrations. Whether it's joining us for a, for a meal in our home, meal with our missional community, or it's even joining us on a Sunday like when we're starting to study a new book of the Bible next week, or if it's join, uh, joining us for a special worship service as we gather as a faith family for a time like Christmas Eve. All of these are opportunities, ways in which we can maximize the time that we have with outsiders. We would make the most of the time. As we devote ourselves to pray, we should also watch for the open doors so that as we live with wisdom, with outsiders in mind, making the most and maximizing these opportunities we have with them as the Spirit of God opens doors to make Christ known. Press in, church. Press in. And let the final exhortation from the passage speak to us as it is simply that we should speak. The text says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. And I think the first aspect of how we should speak is with grace. He says, let your, your speech always be gracious. When I think about gracious speech, what comes to mind is life-giving speech. And what other speech could be more life-giving than that which is informed, shaped by, and infused with gospel truth? But I also think that charity or love should characterize our speech that we should be honest and truthful, that our speech should be edifying and uplifting, that our speech should be kind. In Ephesians 4.29, we're told that no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for, for building up someone in need. <laughs> Check this. So that it gives grace to those who hear. Paul goes on to say that it should also be seasoned with salt, our speech should have uh, what we've heard called a, a, a kind of piquancy to it. It should have a quality of being pleasantly stimulating or exciting. And for those of us who are trusting in the gospel, what is more pleasantly stimulating and exciting than what God has done for us and what he wants to do in the lives of those who will yet trust in his gospel? But not only should we speak with grace, but I think Paul goes on to admonish us to speak with discernment. Paul says that we speak with grace so that you may know how you should answer each person. Now, this is important to realize because, as you know, every person has different needs. We can deal with 10 different people, 100 different people on any given day, and the needs of each person that comes before us are different. 
I think this is yet another reason why it's important to cultivate gospel clarity in the life of our church and in our homes. Now, while it's a valuable thing to have a tool to use to share or to communicate the gospel, I have a few of those. I lean on them. And having gospel conversations, I think it's that much more important to be intimately acquainted with the gospel so that we are taking it in, we are thinking it through, and as we are having conversations on the everyday with individuals, we can turn it out by applying the gospel to their heart's longings. We can speak the gospel in a very unique or apt way so that God might minister to them through us. When I think about what it means to speak with discernment, to speak the right word at the right time in the right situation. It reminds me of what's said in Proverbs 25, 11. It's kind of a, a weird verse when you, first, when you first hear it or when you think about it. It says, a, a word spoken at the right time is like gold apples in silver settings. Kind of strange, huh? A word spoken at the right time is like gold apples in silver settings. What's distinct about that is silver and gold are very... Uh, distinct metals, and they look very different. But what's being said here is that a word at the right time, a word spoken at the right time, it stands out. It's nothing less than beautiful. These words, they're, they're remarkable, they're memorable, they're impactful. And it's words like these, words that are informed by, that are infused with, that are shaped by the gospel and its truth that God will use to ring in the hearts of people that we're talking to long after we've left them. Later in the day, later in the week, later in the year, later in life, God will use these kind of words that are infused with grace and discernment through the gospel to bring about life transformation in the hearts of people. So from this text, we see clearly that we should be devoted to prayer, that we should pray, that we should watch for open doors, that we should live in such a way that God would use our lives to, to testify of the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that we should let our light so shine, live in such a way that people would see our good works and they would in turn give glory to our Father in heaven. That's what it means to live with wisdom and with outsiders in mind and making the most of our opportunities, maximizing them. And then we're to speak. As we consider these exhortations this evening, I, I want to invite you to assume a posture of prayer before the Lord as we just kind of press into a time of responding in these coming moments. Consider how the Spirit of God might be calling you into a deeper, more focused prayer life. What would that look like? Maybe that would look like praying with other people. Maybe that's something that, that you haven't done. Maybe that sounds really scary, really uncomfortable to, to actually like pray with another person or to pray out loud or to pray with people. Well, to kind of take the edge off that, we, uh, on about a quarterly basis, host uh, corporate prayer gatherings on Wednesday nights for all of our expressions. This, is, this would be a great time to press into and, and grow in your prayer life because you're able to pray with other disciples. And here's what I've learned over the course of my journey with Jesus, which has been a few years. I have learned to pray by hearing others pray. I've learned to pray by praying with other disciples. And so if you want to press in to go to a different place in your prayer life, I want to encourage you to consider. Ask the Lord what that means, but consider that it might mean beginning to pray with others. 
maybe getting in a room with other people and praying is too much. Maybe praying with one other person is too much. Maybe reach out to a friend and ask them to maybe schedule with you the same time that you would pray. And in that way, you would be praying together. That's a great first step to take in moving in that direction. Or maybe it begins with you coming to the place in your heart where you readily acknowledge and embrace the reality that you can do nothing apart from God, that you are wholly dependent upon him for everything. I want to encourage you to ask him to stir your prayer life from that place. Because again, that's the lie that is sown into our hearts from the enemy. It was the lie that was sown in the garden at the fall. That we don't have to depend on God. That we, don't, we can operate independent of him. Coming back to the place of confessing, God, I, I can't do it on my own. I don't want to do it on my own. Ignite my prayer life from that place. And then pray that he would open a door to us as a church for the word. And as we watch for God to answer our prayer by opening doors for the word, I want you to consider the questions that I put before you earlier. Maybe this is something you can write down. You can kind of pray through as we respond in these next few moments, kind of use this in your time with the Lord throughout the week. But consider what is it that you perceive to be the closed doors that if God were to open them, it would lead you to clearly proclaiming the gospel. What are the closed doors that you need to be praying? You can press into praying, God, open this door. Open this door so that the gospel, that the word might go forth clearly. And secondly, consider what it might, what it might look like for our lives, for our church, and for our city if we as a faith family are asking God at the outset of each day to open doors for the word. As we approach the table this evening, let's come with our hearts filled with gratitude. Gratitude for the provision God has made for us in Christ. And to also ask him to use us that as we live and as we speak, he would be actively at work in and through us to draw people to himself. <laughs> He's called us in his, his ambassadors. He's entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. So as we pray, watch, live, and speak, we can trust that God will work the work that only he can bring about in the lives of our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, and people all around the city, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Would you pray with me, church?